Welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and uh, we call this uh, podcast The Current Yield. Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's, is away today, but uh, I don't know, we got a full house otherwise. We have uh, Eric Whitehead at the control panels. We have Phil Grant, the editor of Almost Daily Grant's. We have uh, Fabiano Santin, who is the first vice president of many analytical topics here at Grant's. And we have Harrison Waddill, whose voice I think you have not heard before. I think this is your first time. Is it not, Harrison? Yes, it is. Ah, that's good. Uh, Let me see. I I should tell you, I will tell you what we uh, intend to convey today. Uh, Harrison is going to talk about pot. Fine. That's what he's interested in. Uh, Phil Grant's going to talk about uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Fabiano's going to talk about SoftBank. And Eric Whitehead, time permitting, is going to talk about his vacation plans. Always interesting. Always something a little bit exotic. You know, he's not the kind of guy to go to, like, uh, Asbury Park. Not when the DMZ is available, right? That's right. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, uh, so, um, I don't know. I, 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 oh, I myself have a book review. Remember book reports from school? Oh, yeah. Remember? You guys never read the books, did you? No, Spark Notes. Yeah. There's... No, never read the books. Fabiano was an engineer major, I dare say the books were a little bit beneath him. He read the slide rule. Do they have slide rules when you're going to school? No, no. No, okay. Um, I am going to talk about a book called 1931, which is a splendid, concise financial history of a very interesting and indeed harrowing era in our Western finances. So without further ado, though, um, Harrison, tell us what you know about uh, marijuana. Very little, actually, but we have a very good headline today. Uh, Actually, today marks the first ever exchange-traded note. It was launched by RecShares. It's a ticker MJO. First first, uh, only, first uh, uh, Traded note having to do with with available here in the S first exchange traded note having to do, do with, with cannabis ah. and all things cannabis related like, a diversified approach yes it's uh, the index microsectors cannabis two times leveraged ETN and that trades on the MIC ARCA and it's yes the first ever leveraged cannabis exchange traded note available in the U S just two times leverage just two now would one be inclined to buy this thing uh, first thing in the morning or perhaps we won't be inclined to buy it late at night. Uh, it uh, depends. <laughs> I would say yeah. it depends on the state of mind that you're in. Right. Now, is um, I, I know we don't uh, give personal financial recommendations on this podcast or indeed in grants. We, we certainly analyze things bullishly or bearishly or sometimes neutrally when it can't be helped. But we don't say go out and buy this. But Harris, I'm, I'm going to ask you for an, make this an exception. What's your call? I would have to say it's uh, quite possible that you'll see your money go up in smoke. Ooh, yes. Good one. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> QuickBooks, certainly, uh, the ecosystem business people can help us uh, make what is a little bit bad uh, a lot better. Ladies and gentlemen, you know that I'm always on the lookout for ways to help you improve your business. And, uh, you know, if you're self-employed, as some of us are at this microphone, you are constantly on the prowl for that edge. And you want to avoid the headaches. You want to avoid uh, expense. So what do you do? Well, you look for QuickBooks. Uh, You manage your entire workflow from the first estimate to the final payment using Intuit QuickBooks. Now, it says here to discuss how using QuickBooks saves you time, money, and hassles. All right, we'll do that. For example, there's the accountant that doesn't come in anymore. What's his name? Oh, we forgot already. And what that is, uh, we, we miss him, but we don't miss paying him. They're the 1099s that you know, we can, uh, that help us keep track of all sorts of miscellaneous income, that which we have and that which we are aspiring to receive. And uh, QuickBooks will help you make direct payments. Yeah, you can just pay your bills from QuickBooks. So this is a one-stop shop situation. You won't have to learn how to use thousands of tools and software. Intuit QuickBooks does it all. It's the only one you need. 
Having all the tools you need in one place helps you make more productive. Easy to use. You can work smarter, not harder, thanks to how easy it is to use Intuit QuickBooks. Okay, call to action. Give Intuit QuickBooks a try, and you're going to love it as much as I do. Learn more about the smarter business tools at intuit.me slash grant. That's intuit.me, M-E slash grant. We use it here at Grants, and you should use it too, ladies and gentlemen. QuickBooks. So, uh, yeah, so uh, Phil Grant, uh, can you top that? Uh, I'm going to try my best. Um, I uh, saw this morning that um, the Saudi Arabia is, is set to, uh, to turn to the international uh, financing markets as soon as January, and I found that to be uh, curious because um, as we know, uh, they had just uh, for the first time floated uh, 1.5% of the uh, state oil behemoth Saudi Aramco uh, just, just weeks ago and raised uh, $25.6 billion in fresh uh, capital for their for their state coffers. As you may or may not know, Saudi Arabia is um, faced with a, a relatively significant budget deficit um, equating to 4.7% uh, of GDP this year. The, that's, like a, that's as bad as America. Yeah, right. Almost as bad yeah. as us, except yeah. of course, they, don't, they can't finance it with their own. Anyway, the Saudi government has has uh, themselves come out and admitted that the next year's deficit will be 6.4% of GDP so about uh, th you know 30% higher uh, in dollar terms 50 billion shortfall from 35 so the, so the 25 billion or so that they raised from Aramco will cover their budget deficit for uh, just just 6 months and and they're already making plans to turn back to the the um, the international finance market what's notable about that is is a couple things number one um, there have been questions about the actual size of their oil reserves notably uh Gering and Rosenzweig uh, are the natural resource investors and, and very good friends of grants um, wrote in their second quarter commentary, uh, they took note of the fact that Saudi Arabia has claimed to have 260 billion barrels uh, in reserves for about 30 years now. Uh, that's because they don't produce any oil. That's right. That magically, that number is unchanged. Now, there, there's there's other, I mean, um, even taking that number at face value would be a leap of, of faith, uh, considering that before vacating in 1977, uh, a consortium of four oil companies uh, pegged the total likely reserves in the country is much lower. So anyway, um, with all that in mind, we we see um, uh, you know evidence perhaps of of a you know a lack of funding, shall we say, at the sovereign level of Saudi Arabia, and and the the implications of that could be um, wide indeed, considering that um, SoftBank, which is trying to get their second vision fund underway, uh, received forty five billion from the Saudis for their first vision fund, by far their largest investor, and um, as we know, uh, the vision fund has been instrumental in in raising uh, asset values across technology companies worldwide. And the second vision fund is has long been planned um, the you know, bulwark, if you will, to to to, to continue the SoftBank boss Masasan's uh, the Lord's work. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but by, by all that, I, I mean to say that that something is as sort of seemingly unconnected as a persistently low oil price um, could have extremely uh, widespread ramifications. Uh, Fabian, what do you see coming out of SoftBank these days? So last month, SoftBank reported its first quarterly operating loss in 14 years. And today we learned about another high profile exit from the SoftBank Vision Fund. A managing partner is stepping down and that's the second uh, managing partner that is stepping down in two months. We also learned a couple of high profile exits from some of the investees that SoftBank has invested from the Vision Fund this week. Ah. Well, uh, does that constitute kind of a HR insider sale thing? Why? Well, I, I think so. I think that's the best way to put it. All right. So, Just to summarize, we have questions about the funding for the Second Vision Fund, and we have people hitting so, the road, uh, senior people. And there's just to reiterate again, there's no shortage of perhaps profitless companies around the world that are um, uh, depending on, on on additional funding from SoftBank that you know may or may not be forthcoming. By the way, uh, Bloomberg just reported today that the Second Vision Fund has raised. 
raised two billion dollars. So they're very early stage. Just 106 billion left to go. Yes. Well, so uh, speaking of the exodus of executive talent from SoftBank, that reminds me of travel which reminds me of Away, one of our sponsors. So Away creates thoughtful products built for the way modern travelers see the world. They started with a perfect suitcase and now they offer a range of essentials, of uh, all of which will make your travels more seamless. Now, whoever said it's all about the journey has never traveled during the holidays. It's the most stressful, craziest time to hit the road, but Away's products are designed to work and fit together, making travel smoother for the holidays and beyond. So Eric loves Away because, give the thing a little pound there, eh? Yeah, see how solid this thing is? It's perfect for uh, carrying the things that Eric and his family must carry to their exotic and indeed sometimes dangerous destinations. For example, you're not supposed to take uh, bayonets on transatlantic flights or, or uh, indeed explosives of any kind, but it, these things fit uh, nicely here. And, and you know, uh, large wads of bills for dealing with uh, border guards and so forth. And uh, uh, these things fit in the suitcase. Now, everyone has a unique travel style, which is why Away offers a range of suitcases made of different materials like the uh, polycarbonate aluminum that you've just heard. You can get a thing another whack there to make sure it's a standing, right? A variety of colors. What color is that, Eric? Black. Black, yeah. Uh, and uh, two carry-on sizes. So for whoever you are, for whatever you need to pack, gifts, comfy clothes, holiday treats, MREs, the case may be, Away has luggage that works for how you travel. TSA-approved combination lock keeps you belonging safe. Well, Eric, I would advise not telling the TSA what your combination is. You know, just keep that thing locked. So the features of the suitcase, all the way suitcases are thoughtfully designed, last a lifetime. Each suitcase comes with an interior organization system, includes a built-in compression pad to help you pack more in, and a hidden and removable laundry bag that separates your dirty clothes. And I'm gonna say it's a 100-day trial, and everything Away makes, I'm gonna that Away offers free shipping returns. I'm going to say call of action, parens required, close parens, host must voice the special offer. Okay, special offer for your listeners. Visit awaytravel.com slash grant to learn more. And if you're in the US, UK, EU, Canada, Australia, order by 11.59 on 12.15 for free ground shipping with guaranteed free delivery by 12.20. Traditional asked last minute holiday shopping details, check out their website, awaytravel.com slash grant. That's awaytravel.com slash grant. All right, so it's it's my turn. I have read the book. That's, you know, I'm the kind of guy, I guess this phrase might be, the word might be nerd, who actually reads the book for a book report. I read this book, 1931. The author is Tobias Straumann, S-T-R-A-U-M-A-N-N, just out this year. The title is 1931, Debt, Crisis, and the Rise of Hitler. Now, this perhaps might not be everyone's idea of a holiday gift, a book about perhaps the single most harrowing, most profitless year in modern memory in finance. Is that your right? That, you'd be happy to find that under the tree, Fabiano? Yep. Yeah. Well, Fabiano, besides being employee of the month, I think is a student of these things, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, 1931, for those who were not around, I wasn't exactly around, but I've heard about it from my mother. 1931 was the uh, the second full year of the Great Depression. It began in October 1929, and 1931 was, uh, was in a way, it was, a, it was the worst of it. A uh, story of uh, collapsing banking systems and uh, debt defaults, debt moratoria, and of course, uh, uh, grindingly bearish stock market action. And this book, I, you know, does not stint on these gruesome details. But what's what's so interesting to me about it, and I guess I'm talking my book here a little bit as a uh, kind of a, uh, I guess the word is bearish, uh, profit, bearish profit, is is a guy named, uh, one of the characters in this book is called Felix Somari, S-O-M-A-R-I. Why? Felix Somari. And Felix Somari was called the Raven of Zurich. 
because uh, he was the a kind of a Cassandra. He was a Viennese economist. I studied under some eminent Austrian economists of the early 20th century, and he made his life as a banker in Switzerland. And uh, uh, Felix Somary uh, was a student of the world's debt situation. Now, the world's debt situation in the 20s and the 30s was dominated uh, by Germany, which was on the losing side of World War I, and which, uh, by way of uh, atoning for its geopolitical sins, was on the receiving end of an order to pay reparations. And not just any reparations, but reparations uh, as they were subsequently modified that would stretch out to the year 1988. 58 years of reparations was what the Germans had to look forward to. And as, as you can imagine, the, uh, the war did the economy no good. The 20s were difficult, uh, hyperinflation in the early part of the 20s. And the Germans uh, buckled under the weight of this debt. Uh, the weight of the debt is uh, a matter of, was a matter of controversy, I guess, among historians still is. Um, but uh, at one point around 1930, the, the Germans owed, I don't know, something like 88% uh, of GDP, the memory that sticks in mind, in, in foreign denominated debt, much of it short term. So terrific pressure on, on funding and rollover. So the world to a degree was hanging on the very thin thread of German creditworthiness and on the uh, willingness of uh, foreign creditors to extend loans to a slightly problematical borrower. So um, enter now again, or re-enter Felix Somary, uh, Cassandra. And uh, Felix Somary was the kind of guy who got bearish early. I like that, right, fellas? Get bearish, stay bearish. Yeah. Well, not necessarily stay bearish, but you, you, can't, you can't just be a Johnny come lately on That's these right. things, right? right? You have to, you have to. So um, around 1920, he was telling people he did not like the look of the world. And he was he was at once one point in a discussion with John Maynard Keynes. The two of them were at an investment conference. Some kind. He was at Grant's conference about 1926. I guess it was probably not a Grant's conference no. when it started in 1983. Right. But um, it was a it was a formative time because um, here is the here was the uh, encounter between Felix Somary, this uh, not internationally heralded economist, and John Maynard Keynes, who was an internationally heralded economist. And uh, uh, so uh, you know, the guys are talking about stocks as one does at a conference, and uh, Somary says uh, um, he's uh, you know he's telling his clients to get out of the market, to insulate themselves as much as possible from the coming crisis, uh, Keynes strongly disagrees. Keynes uh, expects cheap money to be coming. And uh, he said, did Keynes, quote, I do not doubt its remedial efficacy, close quote. Kind of a fancy way of saying he's bullish. And then, so, Somary, the bear, says his piece. And Keynes says, quote, we will not have any more crashes in our time. I think the market is very appealing and prices are low. And when is the crash coming from, where is it coming from in any case? And Somary replies with this sentence, quote, the crash will come from the gap between appearance and reality. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's a little Delphic, right? You can always, there's always a difference between appearance and reality. You can imagine Keynes uh, kind of walking away, wondering who this guy was. And this was in, uh, as I say, 1926. Ladies and gentlemen, this was not the top. <laughs> the top was in 1929, in, in the third quarter, 1929. And uh, this was June, 1926. So let's count the years before Somer was somewhat vindicated. So 27, that's one year. 28, year two of being wrong. June, 1929, just in time for the blow off, right? In the summer of 1929. So, okay, those are three years and, uh, shall we say, charitably, one fiscal quarter of being utterly 
wrong uh, before being proved historically right. And I'm saying, as someone who has lived through these, shall we say, lived through these experiences before, the three years of being that wrong is the equivalent. What's what's negative dog years? No, it's dog years, right? Yeah. So I multiply those three years times what? Fifteen? Yeah, that's, that's, that's like a good years of being full of beans, right? Time flies when you're having fun. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. So here's the topper. So now it's the summer of 1929. All right. There's a banker's gathering in Berlin. And Charles E. Mitchell, Sunshine, Sunshine Charlie Mitchell, he was called, the president of the National City Bank, now we know it as Citicorp, gets up in front of these, uh, I'm not sure if it was public, but he derides Somary as the, quote, the raven of Zurich, who predicted the worst, but kept being wrong and having bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you want to just squirt? Charlie Mitchell with a water pistol or something for that impertinence. Anyway, this, that's a little, that's kind of a, a self-centered account of this book, speaking from the uh, <clears throat> prophet's point of view. Uh, but something else I noticed about this book that speaks a little bit to the death of Paul Volcker. And uh, I noticed in this book that the narrative of, uh, of doom was periodically interrupted by accounts of counter-trend rallies and outbursts of optimism having to do with this or that palliative political measure that uh, the young plan or the rise of Hindenburg or what have you, or, or Hitler's uh, setback in this or that region election in Germany. And it struck me, uh, again, as it strikes you, strikes you, I'm sure, listeners, that uh, history does not describe a straight line. It is so jagged. And you can be right, but uh, have to endure many setbacks, uh, both on the bullish side and the bearish side. And this, as I say, this calls to mind some of the, uh, the years during the career of Paul Volcker. So here's the timeline of Paul Volcker and the bond market. So I mentioned before to refresh that, uh, that uh, Felix Somary was bearish at least in 1926. And I'm just going to guess, knowing the type, he was bearish probably 1906. Yeah, he probably didn't come <laughs> up with it that day. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he, was, he was bear. He was a bear. Okay, so... Um, now, let us uh, revisit uh, the early period of Paul Volcker's stewardship of the Fed. So now the time has come for Paul Volcker to make his move. It's the weekend of October 6th and 7th, 1979, right? And the bond market is in free fall. IBM, that Friday, had, I think, probably Thursday or Friday, I was there, issued a long-dated 9% security. And they had it over the weekend. And they had, I think it hedged some of it in the futures, but they owned it. And uh, so uh, late in the afternoon on October 6th, 1979, the Fed holds a press conference, unprecedented. And at this press conference, uh, there's a whole lot of mysterious talk about uh, bank reserves and about no longer paying attention to short-term interest rates, but targeting bank reserves and perhaps tightening them. And what this talk meant was that Paul Volcker was going to put a clamp on the growth of high-powered money and thereby kill inflation dead. That's what he said. Not the part about killing inflation dead, but uh, this was the plan. And you could see right away that something had changed. There had been a one-way bet on inflation, the expectations of more inflation for about 10 years. But the world changed, but the world of the bond market was not exactly in sync with the Fed. At least bond yields proceeded to go up. And by, this is from memory now, but memory is not so bad. In the spring of 1980, uh, we had the, the DC-10s called in a kind of a black humorous way. There had been a terrible crash of a DC-10 and the uh, District of Columbia 10s, a long dated uh, treasury bond, likewise lost altitude. And then uh, it was 11%, then 12%, 13%, 14%. So if you like them at 10%, as many people did, uh, you began to doubt your senses at 12 or 13, 14, certainly so, and 15%, very definite. Now, 15% was September 30th, 1981. Let's count the years. So uh, uh, let's see, fall of 79, fall of 80, that's one year, fall of 80, fall of 81. Two years, about two years, not quite two years of Fed tightening, mostly, and of bond yields rising, mostly. 
That was a little bit like the time between 1926 and 1929, right? Except one more year then. But you can, you can see how something that was going to happen can take a sweet time in happening and thereby torture the people who think they know it was going to happen. And I will close this narrative with a quotation attributed um, uh, to Somary by uh, a son. And you can't do better than a source than that, right? Uh, yeah, they that's, definitely that's, know best. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Here's the quote. Somary once told his son the following. I sense the future in my bones. <laughs> uh, it is not only about knowledge, it is signaled not in my head, but in my marrow. Close quote. We've all had that, right? You just know it's going to happen. Right, Fabiano? Yeah, it's in the instinct. Right, right. There in the, in the, in the uh, knee bone. No. Yeah, knee right. bone. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Or sometimes in the bone head, the head bone. That's right. That's, that's usually for hindsight. Yeah, you, you know, heard about head bones, right? Yeah. Well, at France, we've had... Uh, been right, we've been wrong, we've felt our bones, and sometimes we felt it right in the head bone. But uh, what we are not wrong about, ladies and gentlemen, is our gratitude to you for listening. And uh, we're going to do, I think, one more of these at least before the holiday. So I'm going to forbear from wishing anybody a happy or merry anything. I might say, say uh, uh, good advent for one segment of our listening audience. But uh, we will talk to you again before the year is out. And on behalf of Eric Whitehead, on behalf of Phil Grant, on behalf of Harrison Waddell, Fabiano Santin, and in absentia, on behalf of Evan Lorenz, I am Jim Grant, uh, saying thank you until next time. <laughs> <laughs>